Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Hear now God's Word. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And thus far, the reading of God's Word and all God's people said I wanted to make a pastoral note here as I began another sermon. Um, Sermons for a congregation are much like the lessons that parents give their children, day in and day out. And we have to remember, as we sometimes get caught up in the daily hustle and bustle of instruction, that The purpose of the instruction is one of love, that the the point is to help people do better, help them to grow, help them to mature. And sometimes we feel like as parents and sometimes as pastors that we're simply pointing out the things that are wrong, correcting things that are not where they should be. And it's important to, to do that. It's always important to do that in the context of love. And to call us to, to do better, you know, great job, but next time let's do this this way, or let's, let's improve on that this time. And so that's the way I want us to approach coming to the Word of God, is really how we should approach it each time, is a combination of, Lord, I want to be encouraged, I want to be helped, I want to be told good job where I've done a good job, I want to have that kind of encouragement. But Lord, I also want you to correct me. I want you to show me where I'm falling short because that's not good for me either. And that's not good for you. And so the goal is to be corrected, adjusted, encouraged, rebuked, uh, to, to do all of that because that's what the Word of God does is it enables us to make progress. And so what we're not doing is reading the Bible to go through and just look for the so-called positive things. I just want to hear positive messages. I had someone tell me the other day that they listened to, uh, I can't believe I'm going to say this in the pulpit, listened to Joel Olstein radio. Um, and I was not in a position to say anything other than to listen. And they said, well, at least I'm getting a positive message. Uh, well, let me tell you, if that's what you're looking for, then don't read the Bible. Because the Bible's not all that concerned about whether you get a positive or a negative message. It is concerned that we get the truth. And sometimes, if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, that is positive. But if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, that very same message is going to make you feel bad. And you ought to feel bad because you are bad. And the Bible wants you to be good in Christ. And so it's not the message that's the problem. The problem is us. And so what what usually people mean by a positive message is I want you to tell me the things I want to hear. I don't want to hear about things I don't want to hear about. That would be negative, and that would be a downer. That would make me feel bad. But sometimes we have to feel bad before we can feel good. Sometimes we have to have an honest diagnosis of ourselves so that we can make the corrections 
and do what's what God has called us to. Well, last Sunday, we considered uh, that necessity of endeavoring to keep the unity in the bond of peace, as well as the manner in which we were to go about that. That is, with all lowliness and gentleness, as well as with long-suffering and bearing with one another. That's the context where we are to pursue this peace in the church. And this lays the groundwork for the Apostle Paul's teaching on the subject of the church. The Bible spends a lot of time talking about the church, especially in the epistles. And while the epistles do address individuals and individual problems that are in individual churches, nevertheless, even these are always dealt with in the context of the larger doctrine or teaching on the church. As you've heard me say many times, we are always connected to one another all the time. That's obvious on a Sunday morning when we're sitting here and, and singing together and praying together and listening to a sermon together. But it is just as true when we disperse to our individual homes and to our jobs and schools and even in our so-called private moments. When we sin, we impact the church, the body. And when we obey God, when we follow Christ, when we do the right thing, we also impact the body. The church is not simply something we attend or do, it's who we are. And this distinction is the first and the most fundamental difference that I see in families and individuals, that is how they perceive the church and their relationship to it. Is the church, again, something I go to, that I uh, am attached to, uh, or is this something that I am organically a part of, and it's a part of me, and there's this connection. Our doctrine of the church always produces a certain kind of life. We're all parts of the church, healthy or unhealthy parts of the church. In fact, if we don't grasp this doctrine of the church and and the centrality of the church in the life of the Christian, you know, if, if this is just a preaching station that I show up at once a week, get my job done, check it off my list, and then go back to my regular life, then I'm not obeying what the Bible is teaching about the church. Jesus died for the church. And I don't get to redefine that how I want to. The Bible defines what the church is, and the church is a community. It's not just me. It's not just me and Jesus. It's me and the church, and I'm a part of the church. And it's in that context where God says he blesses our lives. And so, uh, if we don't have this framework or context then it turns out that the other instructions and exhortations of the Bible don't make sense. They're not really doable. Most of our problems, you see, have their root in the fact that we start with ourselves. What I want, what I don't want, what I'm interested in, what what I care about, that's where we start. And and so we're very subjective in our outlook, outlook, and as a result of sin... We think everything is about us. I'm what's important. 
I'm at the center of the universe. It's all about me. I spend most of my time thinking about me and my personal interest. What do I think? How do I feel? What do I want to see? But the Bible's teaching about the church takes us away from that self-centered view of life. You're important, but you're not all important. And you're important to the degree that you understand that you're part of something bigger than you. And that you know where you fit in that and how that works and how that bigger thing works on you and you contribute to it. And that's the body of Christ. One body, he says. It places us, that is the doctrine of the church, in a body of other people, a community of God's people, a household, a family. We're parts of something, again, much bigger than ourselves. We're members of the church. That's not like being members of Rotary, where our name's on a list somewhere. Yes, I'm a member. I paid my dues. No. This is more like being a finger or an arm. That kind of member. That's what the Bible, that's the picture the Bible describes as we're part of a body. And it's not a take-it-or-leave-it kind of situation. And so, the solution to most of our problems is to see ourselves the way that God sees us. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 12:27, now you are the body of Christ. You see, it's what you are, not just what you do. You are the body of Christ and members individually. The apostle has already pointed out, for example, in this epistle, that the Jews and the Gentiles have been called and brought together so that they're one. Each of us, every one of us has a different personal history, a different background. We come from all walks of life, all kinds of experiences. And God, in his providence, brings us together and says, be one. Like he brings a husband and a wife together and tells them to be one. Is that easy? Are there challenges to that? Is that difficult? Is it extremely difficult at times? Well, it's likewise hard for the church to do that. Why? All we've got to do is get rid of sin, right? We get rid of sin, husband and wife being one, very easy. Get rid of sin, very easy for us all to be one. Well, that's what the gospel is about, dealing with sin, us growing and maturing and having less sin and more righteousness. So that as we mature, which means as we are less self-centered and more Christ-centered, we find it easier and easier to be one. Remember, all of our problems were and are caused by sin. Sin separates and divides us from God and from one another. The gospel of Christ deals with our sins and puts us back together in Christ. Unity or community or communion is the goal. Everything we do should contribute to that, which means doing things that we don't necessarily want to do. You ever see a child, yes you have, whose parents never make them do anything they don't want to do? Because that would upset them and they, you know, being upset would upset mom and dad. And so they make sure their little darling is never unhappy. And so the rest of the world is unhappy with their little darling. Because little darling thinks that the whole world revolves around them. And everybody's supposed to stop what they're doing and take care of them. And what they want when they want it. Or else. 
everybody will pay. Well, the gospel brings us together. Everything we do, everything we do should contribute to that, which will mean doing things we don't necessarily want to do. We do them for the good of the community. That's how a healthy family works. This is love and sacrifice. Now, let me talk about a few failures. I promise you we're going to come back to the text itself and look at some of the emphasis here, but some of the failures of the wrong view of the church, I want to mention, I think, four of them here. Uh, we see a number of failures to comprehend the right doctrine of the church in the pages of the New Testament. And the first kind of failure is seen in that there were several divisions and schisms, for example, in the church at Corinth. Factions. They saw themselves, first of all, as atomistic. That is a, a big room full of individuals, BBs in a jar. Some of you may have to look up the word BB and figure out what that is. I don't know if that's still in use these days, but uh, marbles in a jar. Just little individual units all happen to be in the same place at the same time. And as soon as the meeting's over, we all go back to our own individual existence. They began to form then separate groups within the church. They began to... Uh, Perhaps it started out as natural coalitions of friends or families, but eventually it emerged into cliques. These are my best friends. These are the people I want to be with all the time. We're just really close. And in and of itself, that's, that's not a particular problem, but it can be, like most things, when sin gets involved. And then what happens is with... The, with uh, uh, they begin to spend, don't spend any real time with anybody else. Maybe just in passing, hello, hi, quick, i got to get over here to my friends and hang out with my people. And then, pretty soon, that's, that would be an indication that we're still primarily concerned with ourselves and not with others. We're not looking around to see who's lonely and who's needy and who needs a friend and who needs service and who needs prayer and who needs, because we're not aware of we're not really concerned about anybody else's needs, but our own. I want to know what you can do for me. I want to know if you make me feel good. But you see, we're members of the whole body, and thus we're connected to every member, not just selected members who satisfy my particular needs and desires. All the one another passages of the New Testament give us the picture of the nature of the church. Now I want you to listen to this partial list of one another passages, which are commands, and ask yourself, does that describe my view of the church? Is this how I'm living? So I'm going to run through this as quickly as I can. Not citing the references. If you want a more complete list, I'll be happy to send it to you. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, giving preference to one another. Be of the same mind toward one another. Let us not judge one another. Edify one another. Be of like-minded, be like-minded toward one another. Receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. 
Admonish one another, greet one another with a holy kiss. Members should have the same care for one another. Through love, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Submit to one another in the fear of God, bearing with one another. And forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. Comfort one another and edify one another. Exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Let us consider one another in order to stir up to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Do not speak evil of one another. Brethren, do not grumble against one another. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. Have compassion for one another. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling as each one has received a gift. Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Is that your view of the church? Is that your view of your role in the church? Of what we're called to do for one another? Not just my closest friends. Not just my little group. Second kind of failure is seen in isolation. Sometimes this is seen in not working to fit in. Or sitting on the perimeter of the community, putting a toe in the water, but never diving in. The Proverbs tell us that a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. He wants to do things his way. Again, selfishness is at the heart of this failure to understand the doctrine of the church. God says you need the church. But this person still wants to be their own God and determine what's good for them, what's good and evil for themselves. I'll decide that, God. Thank you very much. They might need it. I don't. Or I can take it or leave it. But God says it's not good for man to be alone. We live, when we live separate lives, our view of the world is very narrow. And I want you to remember it's possible... To live a separate life in a crowd. To be superficial. Husbands and wives frequently learn how to do this. They can live separate lives under the same roof and even in the same bedroom. From our personal cave, we can only see out of our little door. And we have no others or few others to correct us or provide a different point of view. We grow defensive. And intolerant and prejudiced, not to mention depressed and grumpy. Our blind spots remain forever blind. This leads to what I call, don't be offended, because it's really true of all of us in some measure. It's what I call the weird factor. We're all weird in some ways, because most of us are blind To our oddities. Sometimes we know we're weird and we just like to nurture it, which is a separate problem. I won't address that today. 
But often we're simply blind to our oddities. Now, weirdness is not always, but it is often a form of sinfulness and selfishness and immaturity. And one of the features of immaturity is that it doesn't really like anyone else to point that out. But that's one of the things community does. Community has a keen eye for such things, and it has a variety of ways of dealing with it, some of which can be sinful, so we're not advocating those. So isolation compounds the weirdness, and community exposes it, and in order to be part of a community, I'll have to change. We'll have to modify our weird and immature behavior in order to fit in with the community. It's not the community's job to fit in with me. I'm the part. It's the whole. We'll have to become a little more like the other people in the community. And so God uses the church to sanctify us, to change us. The broader community also helps equip us for personal one-on-one relationships and family life. Thus, community is designed to shape us and to form us into the image of Christ, whose body we are members of. Jesus is neither weird nor immature. Community is a bit like sandpaper designed to take the rough edges off. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. In community, we learn things that we cannot learn alone. It forces us into relationships. Yes, forces us into relationships that test our character, our faith, and sometimes our patience. And that's why Paul tells us that we need to bear with one another, put up with each other. It's going to take that. It teaches us to deny ourselves for the sake of others. It puts us in a place where we can learn both positively and negatively, and we do have something to learn from everyone, young and old, of every background, if we'll pay attention. But we have to actually have things like conversations. We have to move around and go talk to someone and and not wait for everybody to come to us. I'm not the center of the universe. Move around, talk, visit, have a conversation. If we live on the, well, let me, let me back up. As you've heard me say many times, we need to be 10% more like the people around us. If we live on the edge of the community or outside the circle, then we lose all the benefits that God wants us to have. We get stuck in our own foxhole, in our own tiny circle. We lose perspective and don't even know it. That's part of losing perspective. We can't see very far, and we can't see ourselves, but we think we can. A third danger of isolation is to only have community with a narrow demographic of people that are just like us. People who are our age or like what we like. We're kind of our own little club. We're not only isolated, uh, we're not only, not only are we isolated, uh, so is our little group. Our behavior is adding to the isolation of others because when we just hang out with our little group, that means we're not including other people. 
Now, I want to be clear here. Is it wrong for you to have a best friend or a group of close friends that's distinguished from the broader community? Of course not. But only when that becomes exclusive, only when it means you neglect these other duties that God's given us and called us to be one. So you may have to push your comfort zone a little, invite somebody over that you don't normally invite over, go do something or have a conversation with somebody you hadn't talked to in a while. When we hang out just with our friends, what we're saying is I really don't have time for the rest of you people. It is about me. Romans 12 tells us that we are to be given to hospitality and that we are to associate with the lowly. How inconvenient, but how very important. Now, it's not an all or nothing proposition. It's a both and proposition. Pastor Wilson illustrates this in a piece he wrote a while back on the dangers blessings and dangers of online education, but I think this applies to our discussion this morning on the doctrine of the church. So just listen to the principle here. One of, he says one of the central reasons uh, it presents, that is online education, presents such a temptation is that it's really convenient. And one of the great blessings of community is that it is so inconvenient. Seriously, your child has to be at school by 8 in the morning, even though he or she is not a morning person? Didn't have time for a balanced breakfast and has to deal with other kids who are not as sweet to him as his mother is? That's why it's good for him. There is a micro lesson underneath all the other lessons when it comes to working inside the framework of an established community. That micro macro lesson is... That life is not all about you. A fourth danger of these various forms of isolation, a critical danger, is the risk of spiritual shipwreck. God gave the church as a place of refuge, sanctuary, rest, protection, instruction, discipline, friendship, love, communion. And when we forsake that place and go it alone, we have stepped outside that place of covenant protection. The church community is God's idea. Jesus died for the church. He gave the church the necessary gifts to equip us for service in his kingdom. And to treat it lightly or with contempt is both foolish and dangerous. It's highly presumptuous to assume that we don't really need what the church is giving when the elders say that we need to do, a certain, do certain things, we sometimes act like we're the exceptions. And we're all tempted to think more highly of ourselves than we should, and thus the Apostle Paul warns, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. When we're not diligent members of the covenant community that Jesus died to make us members of, then don't be surprised when spiritual drift sets in. I have watched many stray inch by inch. Every moment lived outside the context of a godly community is a moment of temptation and extreme danger. Finally, I want us to look at the language of our text. 
verses 5 through 6 offer some interesting words. There is but one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. He repeats the word one seven times. All of these are used to emphasize the unity of the church. In verse 6, Paul repeats the word all four times. Again, he is calling our attention to the unity of the church. Moreover, we also see that this unity of the church is clearly tied to the Trinity. The Trinity is a unity, a community of three persons and one God, a loving communion. And thus the church is to be a reflection of that communion, a manifestation of the Holy Trinity to the world. And if we neglect the doctrine of God, we can never grasp the doctrine of the church And we will be left with all of our problems of self-centered division and separation. The day of Pentecost and the speaking of the gospel in a variety of languages was a picture and an indication of God's purpose to reunite humanity in Christ. Autonomous man was divided at Babel and reunited in Christ. At Pentecost. Before we can have any hope of overcoming our personal difficulties in our marriages, in our homes, in our churches, our neighborhoods, we must first see what we are and who we are and where we are in Christ. One body. You represent the Trinity here on earth. As Christians, we're not left to ourselves. The opposite of community is isolation. Now, there are degrees of both community and isolation. Many like to treat the community as something they can step into or out of at will. Thus, even when they're technically in the community, they can usually be found kind of hanging out on the edge to enable a quick retreat back into isolation a minimal involvement with a community that is still focused on self-interest. Even the community events are all about them. What's in it for me? For example, a child might be a part of a family, that is, a community, yet still function outside the family, either by demanding to be the center of the community's attention or else by living an isolated existence within the house, within the family. I'm in my bedroom with the door closed or with my earbuds in or... I'm here, but I'm not here. I'm here, but I'm not here with you. I'm here, but I don't care to talk to you or interact with you or have any relationship with you. Leave me alone. And since we don't want to upset anybody or have any conflict, we leave them alone. That's the easiest thing to do. Give them an electronic device and let them go to the corner and leave me alone. That way they're alone and you're alone. That's a lot easier in the short run. So in the church, it's seen in the smorgasbord of picking and choosing 
which things to participate in based on personal likes and dislikes. So I want to emphasize that when the Bible speaks of community, it's not speaking of pseudo-community, pretend community, but real community. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and become members of one another. That will require sacrifice and denial, actual interaction with other human beings, getting up out of our seat, getting up out of our corner, out of our isolation, and doing something. Romans 12, 4 through 5, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. On the, on the one hand, we speak of the church as a living organism because it is the people of God, the living body of Christ, and it is vital, the vital fellowship of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3, 16-17, Do you not know that you are temples of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit, for in fact the body is not one member but many. And so the church is a supernatural creation built upon the life-giving message of the gospel. In the church, the gospel is embodied, and through the church, the gospel is displayed and proclaimed. On the other hand, we speak of the church as an organization because it does have members and structure and officers and government and authority. But the church is more than an organization, not less. The organization exists to incarnate the organism, and so we must keep the balance. If we lose sight of the church as an organism, we will overly institutionalize the Christian faith and fail to appreciate the church as a living body. Yet if we lose sight of the church as an organization, and some people do that, oh, I'm, just, I'm in the true church, I'm in the invisible church, that's the only thing that really matters, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the organization matters as well. Jesus gave the church pastors and teachers and evangelists. He gave the word, the Bible, to the church, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Not you, not you individually, but you as a member of the church. And we could go on and on with why the institutional church, the organization of the church, is critical. That's where the discipline of the church works. That's where the instruction works. That's where living works. Where I am put into those relationships that are uncomfortable and difficult and challenging. And so if we lose sight of the church as an organization, we will overly sentimentalize the faith and fail. It's about me and Jesus and my heart. I want you to find that in the Bible. And when we do, we fail to appreciate the church as a real institution with its own God-ordained government, officers, and discipline. And then finally, one last statement here. We are one body 
means we, this means we represent Christ to the world. This is what they see. And if we're divided or doing our own thing or we have disregard for the church, why would they have regard for the body of Christ? Why would they have any regard for Christ? Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. That's got to be seen. It's not a theory. It's not just a nice little saying. It has to be tangible. It has to be seen in the way we live. Let's pray. Oh Lord, there is only one body, the body of Christ, and we thank you this morning for making us a part of that body. We so easily forget this and return to our self-centered way of thinking and living. And when we do, we neglect what you so highly prized. The church was purchased with the blood of Christ. Help us to value the church the way you do. Help us to live with one another in love and service. Help us to avoid our various forms of isolation and to give ourselves even as you gave yourself for the sake of the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are people who have gathered together with a mutual purpose, and we are bound together by a unified goal. Jesus called us out of the world to himself to become members of his body. We are his community, his communion. We are members of one another. And God calls us to live, and he calls us to live in the context of the community of his people. To the degree that we forsake that assembly with our bodies or with our hearts, our suffering will increase. It's in the church where we are honed and polished. We learn to serve. We learn to be long-suffering. We learn to forgive and love. We learn how to deny ourselves and how to be blessed by others. For this to become a part of our daily living, we have to develop a covenant consciousness Remember, a covenant is a government. A covenant is what God, the structure that God has set up, says, here's how I want you to live in this community. Here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to view other people in that community. Here are the protections. Here are the helps that come from that. This is a way of thinking that begins with a congregation rather than with the individual thinking in terms of we instead of me. It's in the context of the covenant community that we find rest and restoration and safety. And the way we develop the covenant community mindset begins by believing and obeying our loving Heavenly Father. Father, what do you say is good for us? What do you want us to do? Where do you want us to be? How do you want us to view these matters? And so we must resist the temptation to withdraw and instead do our duty. Our duty is to trust and obey even when we don't feel like it. We've all taken public vows before God and his people to be committed participants in the covenant community we call the church. Church is not a spectator sport. You're here to serve. Communities are what we are, is where we are born. Baptized. It's where we live, worship, have birthdays, are instructed, have fellowship, graduate, get married, have babies, have more baptisms are comforted and encouraged where we celebrate, where we mourn, where we serve and are served, where we get sick and die, where we have our funerals. 
And we do this generation after generation after generation as we inculcate the faith of our fathers. So when you have a baby, it's your baby, but it's not just your baby. When you graduate, as some will be doing here soon, it's not, it is your graduation, but it's not just your graduation. It, the community has a part. And when you get married, it's your wedding, but it's not just your wedding. You're part of something much bigger, something very, very important. We're there to witness, to celebrate, to support, to receive. Why? Because we are members of the one body. Heavenly Father, we thank you also for the faithful saints who have both guarded and delivered this gospel to us, who by their lives and testimonies were faithful to their calling. We rejoice in your kind providence which brought the good news to our ears, and for the Holy Spirit who opened our hearts to receive so great a salvation and who made us one in Christ. Help us now to live with a clear view of who we are in the body of Christ and to raise our children accordingly with right thinking and with hearts that love the communion of the Lord, that we might embrace your mission and transmit that mission to our children and our children's children so that we might be found standing with all the faithful as we proclaim the good news to all men everywhere. Bless now our day, our feast, and our resting. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Amen.